Welcome to Women's Cricket Worldwide, the official podcast of Cricket Without Borders. My name is Ken Jacobs, and over the coming weeks, I look forward to bringing you some wonderful interviews with people involved in women's cricket, both locally and from around the world. Well, it's my pleasure today to welcome Sarah Elliott to the Cricket Without Borders podcast on women's cricket worldwide. And Sarah, of course, has played a a key role with Cricket Without Borders on several tours as our tour manager and was also instrumental in arranging our tour to Darwin in 2013 when living there with uh, her husband, Rob. Welcome, Sarah, and um, delighted to have you uh, join us today. Yeah, thanks, Ken. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Now, I, I just mentioned Darwin and you've just returned from Darwin. Can you uh, perhaps just tell us a little bit about that before we go into a bit more detail about your own cricket career? Yeah, of course. Darwin almost feels like a second home. We did spend nearly four years living up there and it was sort of a crucial period in my cricket career. So I played club cricket up there and was involved in the Institute of Sport up there. So for us, it started out as a family holiday just to reconnect with with people up there. But the ACA, the Players Union, had a, a master's tour that coincided. So I joined in with that and we had a lot of fun going into schools and running community um, clinics and academy sessions uh, and had a great five days. We played a game and, yeah, took some cricket up to the NT, which was great. It's there, the middle of their cricket season. That's the beauty, I think, of of Darwin is they do play in the opposite season. So it's a real draw card uh, in terms of. You know, if you're living down south and you want opportunities in the winter to have some match practice, it's a great place to go. And the Masters, the ACA Masters, that takes place all around the country, Sarah? It does. It's really targeted at country regions with the idea of it supports past players. It sort of aims to reconnect us as a past playing group and keep us connected to cricket. But the main goal of it is to give cricket a presence in those country regions. So I think they normally hold two or three a year maybe, and this is the first time for a little while that I can remember anyway that it's been in Darwin. So we had the likes of Michael Kasparich and Terry Alderman um, along with Julie Werner, who's a, a NT, a girl herself that played for South Australia, um, a mixture of, of boys and girls on the tour. It was a lot of fun. Oh, terrific, terrific. So going back, go back well before Darwin now and to when you first started playing the game and interested to understand what was the attraction of cricket for you and and how you 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 first got into the game of cricket yeah I feel like I was really fortunate um that I had a really proactive PE teacher in secondary school and that was probably the the motivating factor as a youngster I wanted to play any and every sport and and I did that I played a lot of netball and tennis and hockey and you name it pretty much I played it and so there was a cricket team at school and the teacher encouraged all of us sporty kids to, to sign up for it and we were a pretty pretty successful little team for for people that hadn't played cricket before. So I enjoyed it there and he encouraged me to go on and pursue, you know, regional tryouts, which I did and progressed on to playing under-17s for Victoria. And from there, that's when I went and joined a, a club side. And, of course, you, know, you, you had a, an illustrious career, with certainly with your own club, Dandenong and Victoria. Australia, the Adelaide, and the Adelaide Strikers, and inaugural captain of the um, Melbourne Renegades WBBL team. Is there any one particular highlight that stands out to you across your career? I know there have been many, but is there one? Yeah, that it's such out to a you? hard, such a hard question, isn't it? Because for me, I feel like 
the highlights I had playing for Australia are equal to some of the highlights I had playing for Dandenong, if that makes sense, because it's about the people that you connect with and the journey that you share to get to it at an end point, if, if you like. But it's about that journey. So but in terms of an Australian career, definitely 2020 World Cup win over in the West Indies was incredible. And when we won the Ashes back, which was a test match in Bankstown, maybe 2011, you're going to test me on years, but Australia hadn't held them for a long time. It was my debut test. I'd carried the drinks maybe for three or four tests prior to that, which was a, an eight-year period, so it'd been a long time waiting to get that cap, and we managed to chase down some runs in the last innings. It was an exciting an exciting game, and we won it. That, that's always a, a special memory. You mentioned the T20 World Cup, and uh, certainly I know that you know, women's cricket has advanced significantly even since since that time. Were those matches in the West Indies well attended? They were reasonably well attended. The round games we played in, on a, in St Kitts, and it was a much smaller island. It was the first time the tournament had been played as a double header sort of tournament with the boys' tournament. And like you said, great to see now that we actually don't have double headers. It's a standalone tournament in its own right, the women's one. So, like you said, some good progression there. But certainly the final was really well attended. The time zone challenges meant that we actually played our final after the men's final. Traditionally, the girls play first and then the men's follows. But we played afterwards and Australia played in that World Cup. The men played in that World Cup final. They lost. There was a massive crowd in for that. And I think the Australians were desperate to see an Australian win. So the majority of that crowd just partied on into the night and stayed and watched our game. And it was certainly a terrific atmosphere with, you know, the musical instruments and the pool was off to the side and people jumping in and out of that. Not us, obviously, the crowd jumping in and out was a a very well attended game. And of course, no mention of your career could take place without mentioning your century for Australia and not only the century for the fact that you made the century, but the implications of, of that having having Sam with you and what that actually led to with Cricket Australia. And people you know, have often referred to that, the, the fact that, that you were instrumental in the development of Cricket Australia's parental leave policy and but at the time, was it was it was it difficult for you to 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 manage playing playing cricket as well as obviously you know, looking after and having Sam and yeah, but it, it certainly had its challenges, but it also had some great advantages as well. I certainly never set out on this you know this thing to be you know to prove a point and come back and play with a child I just hadn't felt like I hadn't finished my career and I had stuff that I wanted to achieve still so I felt fortunate that Cricket Australia supported me to do that it certainly did have its challenges because it was sort of the first that it was happening so Cricket Australia hadn't had it Cricket Victoria hadn't happened and how we negotiated the logistics of traveling with an with an eight-month-old child that when we went to England Sam was eight eight months old but also in the lead up, you know, when I was pregnant with Sam, what could I train? How could I do? What were the policies put in place when I was pregnant? And then obviously, you know, returning to sport. So I was back in the gym, I think, at two weeks and had to wait for medical clearance at, at eight weeks before I could play again for Victoria once Sam was born. So it was all the every step was a cha- you know, was a challenge and a new ground. So we had to work through. Um and to be honest, I found that quite frustrating and at times but then on the flip side I felt really fortunate because I was getting paid at that stage just nominal amount but still I felt like that was my part-time job I could contribute to the family income 
I was getting out exercising. I had a goal to achieve. So I feel like that really helped me through that early, the, the beginnings of, you know, becoming a mum. And we know that can be such a challenging period for so many postnatal depression and all those sorts of things. But I felt really fortunate. I was being paid to get out and exercise and to sort of chase a goal and to, to have something bigger than just this this new baby that I had to attend to. Yeah, some of the logistics were trickle, you know, the the lack of sleep and all that thing. I think that was it's been widely talked about, but Sam wasn't a great sleeper, so that whole test, you know, up, I don't know, three, four, five times a night trying to settle him, still feeding him, obviously, you know, breastfeeding in the change rooms, getting out the the express pump there. The girls thought that was hilarious, and um, <laughs> we had a lot of youngsters on the team there, so. All those little things. I mean, there's plenty, lots of stories to tell. Sam certainly <laughs> felt like he had a hundred, this entourage of aunties following him around. So it was it, a lot of fun. It must have been very satisfying for you to, having gone through what you did and then to to, to make a hundred, um, must have been enormously satisfying for you. Oh, absolutely it was. And I think that's the, the dream, isn't it? When you grow up, it's, you know, wearing the baggy green and then to make 100 is is something really special. So extremely satisfying. And um, a credit, I think, to the Australian selectors too. They took a real risk in lots of ways in terms of taking me over and it could have very easily not panned out that well, but, but it did. It was the first time that they'd selected different teams for the one-day series and the test series. Traditionally, they'd, they'd pick the same squad and that was the squad for the whole Ashes series but this was the first time that they'd backed in picking different players for different things so I was that that first player to be picked only for the test and so it was really rewarding I felt like there's a lot of pressure to perform and it was probably good then to be distracted by Sam and not actually have too much spare time to be dwelling on this fact that I really wanted to or needed to perform it was great. I was surrounded. My sister was living in England at the time, so she was there. My mum and dad came over to help um, support with Sam. My brother was there, lots of extended family. And my dad's English, so lots of extended family, which was a really special moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it certainly must have been. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, Sarah, that you were the inaugural captain of the uh, Melbourne Renegades WBBL team and, and also played with the Adelaide Strikers. At, at the time when the WBBL started, what, did you have any any thoughts as to what that would mean for women's cricket more broadly, and uh, and 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 the changes required to adapt to T Twenty cricket? Yeah, I don't think any of us probably expected how quickly it would take off. I do remember a meeting. I digress a little bit, but I remember when I was contracted with Cricket Australia, we sat down and Belinda Clark led this discussion. She was an administrator. With Cricket Australia at the time and we had this discussion about if if we wanted to be professional athletes 2020 was the vehicle to make that happen and I remember at the time the playing group being a little wary we want to play test match cricket we want to play the purest form of the game but this message coming from Cricket Australia and they did it really well because they brought us into that process and discussed it with us and then I think the agenda was always there for the outcome of the decision but we were brought into that decision making process and we, there was that decision, this conscious shift in focus that we were going to put a lot of time and energy into preparing for 2020 cricket uh, off the field and on the field. Um, and I think that was a really smart decision because the big bash has, has just taken off the WBBL, the TV viewership, the attendance at games. Um, and it, it certainly moved us into the professional space, which means that the girls now have more time in terms of you've seen the fielding. I think for me, 
the fielding has probably been one of the things that's just gone through the roof. And I, I think that's down a lot to um, time. The more time the girls have to actually put into their fielding, also the increase in stock in terms of numbers of girls playing and things like that. So a really wise and smart decision, I think, by Cricket Australia to go down that 2020 line. And now that that door's open, I think it opens the door then to play more one-day cricket to play. You know, we see the WNCL fixture increase this year. There's a big push for more test match cricket. I don't think any of that would have been possible unless that recognition, getting us on TV, a TV audience, getting the base of supporters growing. Uh, I don't think we'd be in a position to have those discussions, if that makes sense. No, no, it certainly does. And and the, the, I mean, the opportunities now are continuing to expand in in women's cricket, as they should too, and with more competitions opening up and there's just a, a new competition that was held earlier this year in, I think it was held in, might have been in Dubai, but it was meant for Hong Kong, Fair Play, it's called, and that's seems like it's going to be um, a, play a significant part in the women's cricket calendar, I think, for a number of years to come. And so certainly, uh, even at the at the local level, the, the game is, is becoming more professional in terms of uh, the, the, the WBBL and, and, as I said, the opportunities there. So it's, do, do you... Do you look back on your career as a as a bit of a trailblazer, Sarah, or is it just something that you know, that's just the way the game's evolved over the over the years? Yeah, I think I think the latter there. Yeah, I think it's just the way the game's evolved. I feel really fortunate that I played in that era, and I we had really strong leadership in terms of especially around the Victorian setup with the likes of Catherine Fitzpatrick and Mel Jones and. Many, many others, Julie Savage, um, Belinda Clark. You look at how the strong group of women that they were and they had role models before them as well in terms of, you know, Mark Jennings and Rayleigh Thompson, Sharon Treadray, Betty Wilson before that. So there's been this long line of trailblazers and I think it started well before my time and I was fortunate just to be on this wave and to really be part of that time where we were, you know, when I started playing we were, it was just before the girls had to pay their own way. So I missed that era. But a couple of years previous, the girls had paid their own way for Australian trips, Victorian trips, and I entered in and, you know, that was covered for us. But from that starting point to now where the girls are getting paid substantially, paid well, I can't remember off the top of my head what a, a contracted state player now would be and a, and a big bash contract. But, you know, it's a it's in line with a with a, a decent wage. So to see, to be part of that transition to play in that era, um, I think I feel really fortunate and I was just in lots of ways one of those people that was riding the wave of lots of hard work done in many, many years uh, previous. And, and uh, you have been a, a female cricket ambassador for Cricket Victoria and Cricket Australia and uh, um, played a key role in the implementation of their females in cricket strategy back in um, 2007, 2008. Um was that also um, an important time in um, Australian women's cricket with the development of, of that strategy? Yeah, I think definitely it was, there was a real investment into the girls' game then to recognise that it needed a strategy, something separate from the that boys, or the, the overarching strategy, but something to really drive us forward. Um, so, again, I was quite young at that stage. So I think in hindsight, look back and go, wow, that was a really special thing to be a part of. I'm not sure at the time that I appreciated it quite as much but yeah that strategy 
was terrific. And again, it was the likes of Belinda Clark, um, Patrizia Torelli was another name in there that really pushed so hard. Um, and it certainly wasn't an easy time. There's a lot of pushback on lots of decisions being made. And, and thankfully, some strong voices spoke up and, you know, the double-headed T20s kicked off at that point and, and other working groups started popping up around the country in each state and across states to share knowledge and resources and to really this groundswell of pushing the game forward. It was in around that time those T20 discussions were had maybe a year or two after that in terms of the way forward really promoting the game and, and launching us into the professional space. So there was I really enjoyed being a part of that. Yeah. I, I know um, uh, know that you're, you're you're still involved with your club Dandenong, but you lead a pretty busy life outside of cricket now with uh, obviously with your, your three boys and you're a paediatric physiotherapist by profession. You're doing some commentary work uh, as well with the ABC and also at Caulfield Grammar. I'm just wondering if you could tell tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing at Caulfield Grammar. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough now for the last two years to be the, the head of their female cricket program, which is great. We've grown from, uh, from really nothing. Now we've got about 40 girls playing at the school, which has been terrific. I think it's a real avenue of opportunity to get into that that school system to promote the game so fortunate to have some really good coaches coaching our girls and we play both in the sort of APS AGSV competition but also some community we've entered some community competitions um, and I'm seeing a real love for the game for girls that have never played it before but sporty kids they've seen it on TV they want to get involved they come down they've got good raw skills um, and then to be able to work with them and, and see them sort of fall in love with the game. And, you know, some of them, a lot of them won't go on to, to play premier cricket or state cricket, but if they go on and play community cricket or have this lifelong sort of love of, of cricket, of the game, and also being out, outside, being active. And I think the opportunity cricket allows for friendships to form, you know, that the nature of there is downtime within the game. It's such a valuable thing for those teenage girls to be a part of and that idea of team success is is really um, special to be a part of. So I'm, I'm excited by what Caulfield are doing and the resources that they're putting behind growing that program. And um, is, is cricket as a sport becoming more popular in other schools as well, Sarah? It is, yep. It definitely is. The GSB run, the, I think, the best competition in, in Victoria in terms of a school competition and sort of APS, AGSB, just entering into it. But we are seeing an uptake, and I think that's the fruit of it being a visual sport now. You know, it's in the newspapers, it's on social media, it's, you know, you can turn on free-to-air TV and you can actually watch girls play and it gives girls something to aim for. It's sort of an aspirational pathway. So, yeah, absolutely. I think probably the gap then is how we retain them outside of school or in that it's always been that challenge you know, once you can start working and other things take off, how do we actually keep them engaged and what's that pathway structure through those middle, sort of that middle period? And I mentioned uh, the commentary that you're doing um, with the ABC. How, can you just explain how that came about and uh, and you obviously enjoy it? I'm really enjoying it, yeah. It was very random, actually. I had a, it's like you spoke about that after the period with Sam, the parental leave, I feel like I sort of get rolled out whenever there's a something to do with, maternity leave or whatnot then and so I did a random interview with someone for the ABC they they rang me up and we did an interview and 
there must have been desperate for, for people because the girl on the other that did the interview said, would, would I be interested um, in doing some? So that's sort of how I got my start and um, had absolutely no idea when I first turned up, but it's been a real privilege to sit and watch cricket, an uninterrupted game of cricket. That doesn't happen often with the, the three kids running around in the background. So to actually get paid to sit and talk about cricket, I like the idea of radio because nobody can see me. I feel like I'm just sitting having a chat with my mates. Sometimes I've got to remember that you know, the rest of the country can actually hear me. <laughs> and, and does it provide a different perspective uh, at all on the game when you're sitting in a, a commentary box and then and uh, actually providing commentary about the game and uh, when you're sitting there having to study it pretty seriously and, um, and then provide your views? Does it provide a different perspective at all on uh, on the game for you? I think probably this perspective's similar, but just the time afforded. I mean, you get the luxury of sitting back without being in the heat of the battle to actually think through options. So it's certainly a bit different than when you're captaining and everything's happening at once and the pressure of making decisions. I've really enjoyed actually being able to watch a lot of state cricket, both Sheffield Shield and the WNCL games. I must admit, I'm sort of you lose touch a little bit with life being so busy that that opportunity to actually sit down and watch. I really enjoyed the opportunity that afforded me to see this next rung of players coming through. So we get to see the Aussie stuff, but to actually see the state cricketers and those youngsters coming through and to to look about, you know, the way they're going about their cricket and approaching it and the strategy that's involved. I've really enjoyed watching on that. It's given me a bit of fire in my belly to, you know, sort of want to get get back involved in in that more high performance side of the game. Um, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed it. So, and so also you know, to, say, to hear people, other people's opinions too. It's great to sit next to next to one or two mates and uh, have a bit of a chat and get their insights and sort of mm. yeah, have a discussion. Um, and you, you just touched on it, and I appreciate that. You obviously, as I mentioned, a couple of occasions you led a very busy lifestyle. But do you envisage at some point in time that you you might move into coaching, you know, as well at a high performance level? I, I would love to do some stuff in that space. The wrestle's always how you juggle, how you juggle the family. Rob and I have always been big on that the idea that somebody's home with the kids and and that time especially when that while they're young to invest in, in them and to enjoy them if that makes sense so mm. coaching is always a tricky one because I feel like you're as committed if not more committed than the players in terms of time commitment and uh, that mental load that it, that it takes so um I would love to be I've just got to work out how I can fit that <laughs> in the schedule um certainly some talk I'd love to start to when they run some great programs over the winter um, three six five cricket programs just started up, and a few others. So it'd be great to dabble in some coaching and to see where that see where it takes me. I'd love to to explore that. Sarah, I've really really appreciated your time this morning. And just but just before I let you go, I was just wondering if you could offer any thoughts on where you see women's cricket in the future. It's a big question, Ken. My goodness. <laughs> oh, look, I think it's continuing to get stronger isn't it there's exciting opportunities on at an international level I think when you speak about that fair break tournament and things like that I see women's cricket that can play a real a real key role in um, in providing opportunities for girls not just in sport but in in life it's a powerful vehicle sports always been a powerful vehicle for social change and things like that so I see it will play a role in that I think we'll see, hopefully we'll see other nations 
enter into the competition as well. I feel like it's difficult to do in a traditional men's space of the game, but in the girls, hopefully we will see the likes of, you know, USA and some of those European countries really step up, the non-traditional cricket playing nations. I think that could really happen through the girls' side of the program before it does the boys' side of the program. You know, I'd love to see us playing more test cricket and just continue to grow at that at that elite level across all three formats. Um, the question and the challenge, and this is across all community sport, is you know what happens at this community grassroots level. I think that's still a really big challenge. Got lots of entry level participants, but there's so many demands for people's time at the minute, and, and culturally, I think that's going to be a challenge for cricket. How we keep people engaged in a sport that is quite long to play, um, you know, when there's lots of other technology that, that that's competing. So that'll be the challenge, but hopefully. Uh, female crew can play a role in that space as well and too in, in terms of keeping communities connected and um, keeping young girls uh, fit, active, healthy, mentally and, and physically. Mm. I couldn't agree more. And I think there are certainly some challenges ahead, notwithstanding that the game is moving forward in, in leaps and bounds. I think, um, and you touched on you know, a lot of those, those issues that need to be addressed going forward, but as I said, I know you, you lead a very busy life, Sarah, and I've really appreciated having a chat to you this morning and uh, learning a little bit more about about your career and, and your insights into the future of the sport. So th- thanks very much, and I really appreciate it. And I know Claire Cannon does as well, the support that you've provided Cricket Without Borders over the years and your in- and continued encouragement and promotion of what we're doing. So th- thanks very much, Sarah. Oh no worries, Ken. It's my pleasure. I'm really pleased to be able to, to be able to do it and to just see how well Cricket Without Borders is going. It's it's a, an amazing program, and I'm excited for the the upcoming Fiji tour and to see how Chelsea goes coaching that group. But yeah, no, really appreciate you having me back. Terrific. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks once again. Thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of our Cricket Without Borders podcast. Please make sure you follow the show in your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. Or please follow us on social media or on our website, www.cricketwithoutborders.com.au. Thank you and look forward to tuning in for our next episode.